0: next African story will be written by Africans meet the people using technology innovation and entrepreneurship to craft this new narrative this is building the future podcast with your host Dolton. coming up today on building the future
1: when I was young, there were moments where I realized that my situation was different. My mom was uh, part of the first democratic government. There were things like going to vote for the first time, having breakfast with Nelson Mandela. and I have really, really great memories. I really could not stand being an employee. I hated the bureaucracy. I didn't like having to depend on someone else you know for a promotion I quit my job I had a vague idea I hadn't really solidified anything yet at the same time my husband who's my co-founder in Sweep South was coming to the same realization so we quit our jobs and didn't really have anything to fall back on we cashed in both of our pensions
0: um, that must be scary and, uh,
1: yeah it was scary and
0: This series is in partnership with the British Council in Nigeria. The British Council is the UK's international organization for cultural relations and educational opportunities. All opinions expressed by me and the podcast guests are solely ours and does not reflect the opinion or policies of the British Council. For more information about the British Council, go to britishcouncil.org.ng. Do you have an offer, a product, service or message that will be ideal for entrepreneurs, investors or corporate executives across Africa? Building the Future podcast can help you. This podcast has been sponsored by partners who want to reach super targeted audience of investors, entrepreneurs and people who are in the process of starting their own business. If you or your company is interested in reaching those audience through this podcast. We would like to chat with you. We have sponsorship slots from three episodes up to one year. Send me an email via hello at the starter.com. That is H-E-L-L-O at T-H-E-S-T-A-R-T-A dot com. And we can take this further. My guest today is Aisha Pandal. She's the co-founder and CEO of SweepSouth, an online platform for booking and managing and paying for home cleaning services. SweepSouth is the first South African startup to be accepted into a 500 startup accelerator program in the Silicon Valley. Aisha is somebody I really respect. She is a scientist who completed her PhD in human genetics at the University of Cape Town. She is a recipient of a South African Women in Science Award. In 2016, she was awarded the Price Check Female Entrepreneur of the Year, so I look forward to Having an interesting conversation with aisha today aisha welcome to build in the future
1: Thank you. It's a, it's a pleasure to be able to chat today and to talk a bit more through some of these things that you've mentioned.
0: Awesome. I really want to give a shout out to Catherine Lockoff who introduced us and without her, this episode wouldn't have been possible. And um, We were supposed to meet in Cape Town, but due to some scheduling, you were busy, you were away and we couldn't meet up and I was only staying for a short time in Cape Town. But this conversation is happening now and I'm looking forward to it.
1: Yeah, me too. And hopefully meet in person in future next time you're in Cape Town. or next time i am where you are
0: definitely so let me start from the beginning you are a child of the struggle your parents were involved in the anti-apartheid struggle, actually leave some of your early childhood outside South Africa in what you call EXA. Let me know how that affected and impacted your life. Well, let's start from your childhood. How was that living with the parents that were so dedicated to the struggle against apartheid?
1: In many ways, looking back at my childhood, it, it was probably from a child's experience um, as a calm and loving and kind of, you know, typical young, happy childhood as it could be and I, I think I need to give my parents a lot of credit for that because there was a lot going on behind the scenes that I would only later discover was happening. Um But When I think about my childhood, um, some of the things that stand out are, you know, the fact that I had very forward-thinking parents, having a daughter, you know, they were from a very early age, you know, telling me that as a girl, you're as good or better than boys at, at whatever it is that you choose to do, you know, and there was no notion of any sort of racial or gender discrimination, which was very liberating because my parents encouraged me to really learn as much as I could about the world and about other people and other cultures. But, you know, a little did I know that in the background, you know, my parents were obviously fighting against the apartheid government in South Africa through the ANC. Uh, my father was involved in the armed struggle, so he was actually an MK soldier for the ANC. And so was there he? were a few times, yes, he was. That's yeah, interesting. So a few times where uh, our lives were actually at risk. Wow. So
0: where were you living at that time?
1: We were living in uh, Botswana. So we moved between different cities in Botswana. My parents were teachers by profession, and they actually met teaching. And so I spent some time with my parents uh, over this last weekend. And, you know, I asked my dad, what actually interested you in mom? You know, what made you approach her? And he said the fact that they were both teachers, but also he was a soldier in the armed struggle. And and my mom's family history was a very political uh, history from my mother to her father to her grandfather. And so, you know, he already had the sense of the... The importance of this family and he had a lot of deference for my mom and for her family and I think initially just wanted to be friends and then obviously he wanted to take it a step further
0: Yes and how did that impact you growing up with a dad who is a militant uh, fighting uh, apartheid in South Africa and armed struggle and also educated a teacher uh, so there would have been a lot of elements of the intellectual reasoning behind mm. what they are yeah. doing and I guess there will be a lot of conversation and, and very good conversation at home about why you are quite different, why you're not living in South Africa and why your dad is doing what he was doing. How did that affect, impact your shaping of your mindset and your your value and your approach to life and solving problems?
1: I think, uh, you know, growing up with very well-educated parents, there was a lot of debate in our household from an early age and we debated a lot from a logic and philosophy point of view and that's been it's carried through in the way that I've thought as a child and then as a young adult and you know later becoming a scientist I think a lot of that kind of started with this love for debate and questioning and not being afraid to ask difficult questions or to be wrong and want to be corrected through knowledge. And in fact, even as an entrepreneur later on, I think those things kind of carry through as well. But, you know, with my father in particular, he was arrested a few times when we were young, you know, so, and at the time, again, you know, your dad's just working late or he's staying over somewhere or whatever the case is. And later you learn that he'd, you know, he'd been arrested. Um, We had threats to our house numerous times, both in Botswana and when we'd come back to South Africa. And then when we did eventually move back to South Africa, it was pre-democratic South Africa. So it was kind of the period in between these negotiations between... between the liberation struggle and the government at the time and they were negotiating how this whole handover would happen and trying to negotiate that it would happen in as peaceful a way as 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 possible and during that time there was still a lot of racism um you know still a lot of distrust from both sides and so we moved back to south africa to be part of that process but also against the backdrop of a lot of you know distrust um still facing a lot of racism at school we were early you know some of the first crop of black students to go to these previously white only schools my parents insisted you know that that would be the case I think not necessarily thinking about what the experience would be like for their kids but again you know focusing on what's right uh, more than anything else and I think it was a very interesting time and I feel very grateful that my childhood wasn't severely impacted in a traumatic way but at the same time I really uh, respect the, the fact that I grew up at such a historical time and you know early Visitors to our homes, and we would visit people like the Glover family and the Sisulus and the Tambo's. And I remember one of my earliest visits once we'd arrived in Cape Town was to Archbishop Desmond Tutu's home.
0: Interesting. And
1: uh, we entered his house. I can't remember why, but we entered his house through the garage, and he had a remote for his garage. And I I don't know why. I must have. Maybe I hadn't seen something like that before. But I was completely, you know, just fascinated by this thing. You know, but
0: a remote that opens the door,
1: (laughs) that opens a garage door. So, so yeah, really fond memories and having breakfast with Nelson Mandela and ordering uh, stewed fruit for breakfast because he had ordered stewed fruit. And then, you know, being a young child having to eat kind of stewed fruit and custard, which tasted really awful, but you know, (laughs) kind of just swallowing it down because my idol was eating it. So yeah, I have really, really great memories of these giants of our time and these giants of our history.
0: Yes, and a giant of history of Africa generally. It was Obama that said during the funeral of Nelson Mandela, the memorial service in Johannesburg, and he said Mandela is a giant of history in the 20th century and he is rightly so. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about when you were growing up and knowing about the struggle. At what point did you, because there is a thread, you know, we had this conversation before about what you're doing now as an expression of your childhood even though it's done in a technology enabled entrepreneurial way. So I want to tease that out. So when you're growing up, at what point did you realize that you are growing up in a different reality from every other South Africans? Um, your parents are in the struggle and you are in exile and then there's a different expectation of you compared to other people or you didn't have that reality at all. Or at what point did you realize that something is different about your parents and what you're doing and you have this close relationship with the parents of as we talk about?
1: Um, so I think, again, and I have to credit my parents for this, is that they tried as much as possible for us to have a normal childhood, but they focused on values. And so it was less a, you know, my parents are activists and uh, they're activists against the system, but rather just growing up with a really secure and sure sense of wrong and right and of values. And um, I think when I was young, there were moments where I realized that my situation was different. So there would be, well, firstly, you know, when I was nine or 10, my mom was uh, part of the first democratic government. So that already meant that, you know, there was, I obviously understood that there was a big change in the country um, and that my family was part of that. Um, You know, there were things like going to vote for the first time. And we've got a picture at home where our faces are painted, uh, myself and my three siblings. Our faces were painted black, green and gold in the ANC colors. And we were going along with our parents and with the family friend To go and vote for the first time. Interesting. So um, it wasn't really a you know a sit down conversation. This is who we are, and this is what it means. You should become. But there was just throughout my life the sense that um, there are values that we, as my parents' children, need to uphold. Um, and there's a culture that is very strongly aligned with the culture of the ANC. So um, you know multiculturalism and non-racialism and equality for all, and the power of education and democracy. And those were just things that I was just brought up with. And it's like asking a fish, you know, how did you learn to swim? It's just, I was born and that's just the context of my upbringing. And
0: you just found yourself in that. So um, is that what influenced what you wanted to study? So you studied science and you decided to pursue human genetics and your PhD. Was that a drive for a social impact kind of uh, problem solving? Or was it just that, okay, I have to be educated. I want to be a lecturer or I want to be this. Uh, Was there any problem solving? drive that led it to study what you studied and also pursue your PhD?
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, certainly there was the sense that whatever I needed to do had to be something impactful. And, you know, and in my parents' eyes, uh, you know, impact meant you had to get a qualification, educational qualification, a tertiary qualification, and then you could do whatever you wanted to, but you had to make sure that you studied. And so um, I actually, for most of my schooling, had thought that I would be a lawyer I have uh, on, on my mother's side. There are six uncles and aunts apart from my mother, and four of them are lawyers. Okay. And my grandfather was a lawyer. My great grandfather was a lawyer, and the profession of law in South Africa. So under the apartheid government, one of the few uh, professional qualifications that young black people could obtain was a law degree.
0: And, and, and it's one of the most useful, isn't it?
1: It is exactly, and particularly you know in the struggle. So a lot of these lawyers ended up representing both people who were being tried uh, by the Party government, but also just ordinary, you know, black South Africans who were being wronged in whatever way. So I was, you know, convinced that I was going to become a lawyer and it suited my strengths. I was very good at debating and English and, you know, I wasn't actually that good at science. But with, and my father in particular, just really being this person who encouraged questioning and finding out about the world and encouraged reading. And my parents had books about history and science and physics and crime novels and uh, all sorts of things. And so this questioning the world was really what led me to enjoy science and then to later decide that I wanted to study science and and that although I'd probably be a good lawyer, it wouldn't be as fulfilling as uh, this kind of process of discovery that science takes you on.
0: And was it driven by discovery and question asking or were you looking to see how you can use science to solve some of the social problems that you see in South Africa?
1: Well, I think that came later. I mean, I certainly wasn't thinking about social issues at that point. You know, as a 17 year old student, I was just questioning the world and wanting to understand how the world worked and how as human beings we fit into that. Um, and so kind of starting from abstract, you know, concepts about, you know, atoms and physics, and then building all the way up to eventually studying human genetics. And I think once I studied human genetics, and I understood that as human beings, we all have this blueprint, but in some human beings, for whatever reason, there are uh, glitches in the in this blueprint um, and that previously the thinking was that you're born with that and that's it and you can maybe take some medication to assist with symptoms but your destiny in terms of your genetic destiny is set from the moment that you're born and uh, around the time that I was finishing off my bachelor's degree I became exposed to gene therapy and this notion that you actually can change your genes and that this blueprint that you're born with doesn't necessarily mean that that is your that's your destiny that's how you have to carry out your life that's and, interesting. and that's what's really interesting me. It's
0: fascinating to me as well. I'm hearing that maybe for the first time, I think, that you can influence your genetics, you can change it. How does that work?
1: Absolutely, yeah. So, I mean, if you think about your genes as this kind of, you know, this long line of genes that are encoding different proteins that yeah. do work in your body, yeah. it's recently been discovered that there are different molecules that you can use to either silence or enhance gene expression, or even actually cut out entire genes or pieces of genes. All together and replace them with functioning copies. In the past uh, 10 years or so, there's this whole field around biotechnology that's been built up around. Um, replacement, suppression uh, You know, any sort of editing Or modification of genes Particularly around diseases And diseases like cancer So, you know, cancer And uh, cancer biotech Has become a, a huge field In Europe and, and in the States In particular But, you know, I think I was just fascinated by this idea That you can go into someone's body And into their system And you can modify their genes And that not only changes Their, whether they have a disease or not But it also changes whether You know, their descendants and their children and grandchildren will we have this, all sorts of uh, legal questions around and ethical questions around that as yes. well which, which makes it all the more
0: interesting. Yes, yes. Uh, I think there are a lot of legal implications and uh, some ethics that But are quite fascinated and I want to know how do you do that? Is that through an external interventions um, like, that you have to do to change the molecules or change the RNA or is it that you just train the internet one to be able to behave in a certain way or interact in a certain way that they're not doing before?
1: Uh, so there are many ways that you can do it and a lot of this is still at very experimental stages but um, as an example my thesis looked at a disease called retinitis pigmentosa which is a hereditary form of blindness and what happens in this form of blindness is that your cells express a protein that obviously is encoded at the genetic level so there's a problem with the genes that encode this protein and the protein is not a functioning protein um, but it's expressed nonetheless and eventually it's expressed but isn't functional and so it clogs up the cells and causes them to undergo uh, apoptosis or or programmed cell death so basically your cells commit suicide they go oh no you know things are not working here the best thing to do to try and preserve the surrounding structure is just to commit suicide Um, and so this happening in your eye cells obviously eventually causes you to go blind my thesis looked at therapy that would either silence the protein and in the eye so you would inject or you deliver therapy into the eye that would bind to those genes and it would silence their expression so it would stop them from being translated into proteins and then you would introduce a synthetic version of the protein into cells or there's some cases where you know there's another functioning copy of the protein or there's enough kind of low level expression or, or whatever the case is so you may or may not need to introduce a new protein but you know that's one way and that's that's one of the things that I looked at in my research but there are many many other ways so there's you know stem cells that you can introduce that are basically copies of defective cells that you introduce into the body, but they're genetically engineered copies with the right version of the protein. Um, so many, many different things being trialed. And it's a fascinating field. And I think it is the next kind of wave, um, you know, we're now kind of in the fourth industrial revolution and we're talking about technology and AI. Uh, I think the next wave is really going to be biotech in the sense of modifying ourselves and our environment. So livestock, uh, plants, making sure things produce better are resistant to diseases you know don't become extinct um, under harsh conditions so yeah it's a really really exciting field
0: yes it's really fascinating actually and just talking about it I, I, I'm just getting drawn in I could have another set of questions on that <laughs> alone I, I read last year the book by Arari Homo sapiens and one of the thesis of the book is that and we, we genetically modify ourselves into becoming another kind of species and there yes. will be other species of Homo sapiens that will come because Homo sapiens was not a first Human uh, that came yeah. that book was quite fascinating. So looking at that fascinating field that you are in and that interesting that kind of topic and also the fact that is it's evolving and there will be loads of things that the loads of implication and application of that, um both for life, for business, and, and for a lot of things. How did you move from that to doing a startup and doing Suicide? So um
1: I'm very impatient and I'm very much about, and as I've gone through studying and, and gone into a career, I'm very much about about execution and wanting to do, and uh, I think as fascinating as my research was, I I was frustrated at the prospect of how long it would potentially take to turn that research into something that would be applicable in people, um, and particularly you know being in South Africa and not being in in San Francisco and not wanting to go and move to San Francisco or New York where a lot of these things are being turned into trials, and you know with the prospect of hopefully turning them into actual therapy in the next few years, clinical therapies. So I just I realized that it was going to take a lot of time and a lot of money to try and develop something like that here and I also started to think about how many people that would affect Um, and I started to think about that against the backdrop of what the real issues are that are facing everyday people in South Africa and and in fact on the continent and I thought you know there are a few thousand people who have genetic diseases and these sorts of diseases that we can address it will take 10 to 20 years to, to have this as a a kind of readily available therapy or medication that people can take. I didn't feel like there was enough impact then. I didn't feel like personally at that time devoting myself, my energy, my career to that would be fulfilling.
0: Okay, so it's about the time and the impact and the delta between that that makes you think yeah. that okay, I would rather spend my time doing something that I can have a huge impact and I yeah. can do it quickly for people yeah. that are here right now. So I get that. But I think what I would rather want to do is something that is that long term and work in a research yeah. center or, and then be able to just contribute to the body of knowledge about yeah. that and they might not see the fulfillment of that in their lifetime. They're just happy to just move the needle. And yeah. I'm not satisfied with that. Yeah, I'm absolutely. with you as well. After my PhD, my postdoc was just one of the most boring job I've ever done. It was just <laughs> not as interesting as the PhD itself because the PhD was, I had my own time. I could do something I'm pursuing and a question I want to answer. I can walk out through the weekend and do it and it was just very yeah. good. And then postdoc was just like nine to five and it was just writing papers that will be read by yeah. maybe tens of people or at yeah, least 100 absolutely. people or somebody will quote it in their own thesis at, at some stage. So I find I find that very hard that I'm making huge impact that way. Yeah, so yeah and,
1: and you know, there's obviously a role for that, you know, and obviously all of that research is building on something and one day will obviously be um, immensely valuable. But I think it's just, you know, there's this personality type yes. that is a lot more impatient. Yes,
0: definitely. We need people to be able to contribute to that body of knowledge. What we're using now and a lot of applications and things that makes our life better now were built on the bedrock of people that have done small research, big research, or contributed to one way or the other answering questions about technology, science, biology, and biotech, or anything. they just contributing to that. And that little drops is what we're benefiting now. But like you said, it's personality types. So let's talk about how you get to that aha moment about strips out. How did you determine yeah. what you want to do next? And how did you come about founding your company?
1: I had decided then to, towards the end of my PhD, I was already, I think at the stage that I was writing my thesis, I decided that you know this wasn't for me and I wasn't going to become a Researcher, and so I thought about what I wanted to do in the context of this question about impact and reach, and and I thought that business was a good place to go because I felt that people are very motivated by the prospect of making or losing money and so you know in business things tend to move a lot more quickly than they do with research and in academia and so I decided to pursue business for the next few years and so during the last year of my PhD I enrolled in a business course at the same university but at the university's graduate school of business I convinced the deans of both faculties both the health sciences faculty where I was completing my PhD and the business school to let me study the two uh, finish up my PhD and study this business qualification over a year uh, at the same time and uh, you know, it took a lot of kind of charming both of them to convince them that I wasn't going to fail <laughs> either course um, and uh, and then ended up finishing a business qualification and really, really enjoyed business administration, which was what I was studying at the time. And, you know, particularly learning about strategy and operations and what it takes to run a business and financial management and looking at everything through the lens of management accounts. Um, And so I was convinced that business was where I wanted to go. And then I next went on to work as a management consultant for two years, again, just trying to get some business experience and immerse myself in a business environment. And what's great about management consulting is that you're going into a client's environment and very quickly having to get to grips with their business operating model. And then having to also very quickly get to a point where you can advise them on issues that they're having within their business. And you have to be credible um, in your recommendations to people who've worked in that industry, you know, for decades. Uh, you're often talking to C-suite level about you know how to make your business better, and you're doing it as someone who's coming in with very little industry-specific experience. So that was fantastic kind of entry into, into business. And you know I want to say crash course, but I feel like it was so much more than that. But kind of yeah. this this really good uh, um, exposure to the business world. You were thrown
0: and into the deep end,
1: absolutely thrown into the deep end, yeah. <laughs> And, um, and then I did that for two years, and I really enjoyed the experience, and I think there's a lot of great management uh, skills that come out of management consulting, but I really could not stand being an employee. I hated the bureaucracy. I didn't like having to depend on someone else, you know, for a promotion, or I didn't like the fact that, you know, I would be measured against a peer group, and regardless of my performance against my, that peer group, there were so many other factors at play that would determine whether I'd be promoted or not, so I I struggled there and I struggled with the working hours and the fact that, you know, it's set working hours regardless of the work that you have to accomplish or what you're doing on the day. You know, I had a a daughter at the time who was three, I think, uh, and I struggled with the time that I wasn't devoting to family and kind of what I saw as the lack of personal return as a result of
0: that wow so those are the key things that you are decisionally about the work dependence on other people for your progress and the working hours yeah. and what does that make you to now come to a decision to say i want to touch something or uh, were you looking for a way out yeah so I, I
1: i quit my job i had a vague idea i like the idea of marketplaces but you know i hadn't really solidified anything yet at the same time my husband who's my co-founder in sweep south was coming to the same realization so he's technical he's He's an engineer and a a software engineer. So he's, you know, was also working these big corporate companies, but he really was missing being able to build things. So at the same time, we actually, we quit our jobs and we didn't really have anything to fall back on. We cashed in both of our pensions. um, That must be scary. uh, Yeah, it was scary. And our families, you know, obviously weren't very impressed with us, particularly having a child, you know, jumping into something else without really knowing if that was going to work or even having a, a solid idea that we could tell them.
0: About. most of um, the time maybe one of the yeah. <laughs> couple will be the one that is jumping and the other one will stay in a regular yeah. job uh, but yeah. you, both of you jumped at the same time
1: yeah we felt like it wouldn't be fair you know for one to have to sacrifice their happiness for the other person and i think both had qualifications we both had work experience we felt like you know absolute worst case scenario we'll have to start from scratch and work again and reassess but let's both jump into this we didn't necessarily know that we'd be working on a business together we said only if it makes sense in terms of our skill sets and what the business requires. But we both knew we wanted out of being employed.
0: So how did you come about sweeps South?
1: And so we now quit our jobs and cashed in the pension. We had a bit of savings, not nearly enough, but, you know, a bit of savings as well. And we went to stay with our parents, to stay with my parents at their home in Cape Town. And uh, we just spent a bit of time thinking about what it is that we wanted to do. And we had thought of this idea of a uh, a tourist marketplace where you would allow tourists who are coming into South Africa to Book uh, tourist experiences, and I, you know, put a lot of work into it, and you know, my science background and the management consulting background, and I put together a fifty-page business plan for this business <laughs> that would be called Shutter South. <laughs> and then I actually thought uh, a few weeks into it, I actually like I I don't travel that much, and I haven't traveled that much. I mean, I enjoy traveling, but but I don't particularly enjoy going on these hectic travel experiences. So is this the right thing to do? And and, and I had a chat with my husband and co founder, we said, you know, this doesn't quite feel right. But we'd registered Shift South as a company and we thought, you know, let's shelve it and let's think about something else. And then we were looking for someone to help us with home cleaning at my parents' home. The lady who does cleaning there and who helps with housework and kind of home management was going to be going on holiday. It was the December holidays at the end of the year and uh, she was going to be spending time with her family and so going on leave. We needed someone to help to kind of to step in for her because we also had family coming over to stay at the house and you know there was going to be a lot of activity and we went through this really long and inconvenient search trying to find someone to replace her temporarily you know at the time there were still these newspaper classifieds that we were you know looking through and you'd phone someone who were advertising their services and you know they'd say no well I actually found work you know a week or two ago and that ad's just still running for whatever reason Or well, you'd phone someone else and you know you'd have a, a strange kind of deep male voice answer the phone who was definitely <laughs> not the person who was advertising the services. And so we realized that there was a lot of uh, inefficiency in uh, how these two sort of sides of a market were connecting to each other. We knew that there were people, domestic workers in the country who needed work. And as we started to kind of delve into our own experience and how frustrating it was to try and find someone, uh, we also started to realize that there was big potential here in terms of the scope of this issue. And then through the search, we also spoke to people who we were going to interview uh, who worked for a, And people talked about being, you know, very badly paid, not knowing what they should be paid, people being treated with racism, you know, in customers' homes or or by agencies. And uh, there was a social element to it as well. And it wasn't just about connecting the two sides together. It actually became about, hey, here's a potential opportunity to solve this problem, Uh, this problem about connection and efficient connection and timely connection. But we could also use the opportunity to start bringing about a change in mindset about the work that people are doing in homes and, you know, what it takes to do this work and who these people actually are who are doing these work in our homes.
0: And did you ask a lot of people as well, in order to determine how big the market is? So initial problem you are trying to solve, there are some people that will want that kind of problem to be solved for them. So travel and active mm-hmm. travel, but yeah. you couldn't relate yeah. to it. So yeah. you couldn't exploit as big as you wanted it because it's not something that you can relate to. And even yeah. if you can relate to it, it might be that the market is not that huge and it could be yeah. that maybe a few yeah. people. But with this one, yeah. you can relate to it. you understand? But my question is, do you know whether it's going to be big enough? Because South Africa, maybe like most African countries, there are maybe less than 5% of people that actually need domestic help or can afford to pay for domestic help. So how did you determine how big that market is in order for you to determine whether you want to go for this or
1: not? So we looked at it a little bit differently, right? So there is looking at it in the sense that in South Africa, there's this proportion of people who are able to afford to have domestic work in their homes. But we looked at it in the way that the Uber founders looked at the question of their business when people asked them about the size of the taxi industry. You know, who actually takes cabs and how many cabs are there? They were asked by a professor, how many cabs are there in New York? How many yellow cabs are and how many do you realistically think that you can replace? You know, and I think we tried not to box our thinking into what currently existed. And instead, we thought about it this way. We thought, how many people are there who are looking for this type of work in this country? Uh, We realized that that number was actually huge. So the number is 1.2 million registered domestic workers in South Africa, where we have a population of about 54 million. Interesting. And then that's against the backdrop of anything from around 27% to 40% unemployment, depending on the defining characteristics that you use. But basically, very high unemployment levels and this very big base of workers who are willing to do this kind of work. And then the question becomes, how do you make it affordable for people to hire them in their homes? and how do you make it accessible so that that number, whether it's 5% or 10% or 20%, but so that you can increase that number and you can potentially increase the size of the market from a customer side through technology.
0: That's interesting. That's a good way to look at it because then you are looking at an expanding market rather than an existing market. And you were trying to then develop and adapt the product in a way that we attract more people that wouldn't have used that service before either because of inefficiency or affordability or accessibility and you're making the product to be able to fulfill that to make it efficient to make it affordable and to make it accessible and that way you can see that the market can enlarge more than what was originally there before.
1: Yeah, 100%. I think it's vitally important to also be very aware of what's happening at the macro level. So we knew that, you know, we're using technology to connect these two sides together. In terms of technology and connectivity and mobile penetration and data costs, all of those things are going to move in a direction direction that will make it obvious that this service will become more and more available to the market as time goes by. We also knew that, you know, there's a growing middle class in South Africa and in many other African countries and many other obviously emerging market countries, which is part of what defines them as such. And so you're going to have more and more young people who are working, who are young professionals, who are busy, who have, you know, less and less time, but more disposable income to devote towards things like home cleaning and other home services as long as it's priced correctly. So we also knew that we were moving with international trend, mm-hmm. um, which I think is really, really important to consider when you have an idea or when you're starting a business.
0: Yes. So that's quite good. Let's look at the supply side. You mentioned that about 1.2 million registered. And I'm also thinking that you applied the same principle in that, that it's going to expand. As you make this work more accessible, more efficient, then there'll be more people that wouldn't have done the domestic home cleaning that would not do it because maybe the pay is better or the structure is better. So tell me about that and tell me how you approach that and also I've read somewhere about uh, your view that it is also a social question an equality question and about pay question as well and that way you approach it is quite unique and totally different from people that do the same business um, in let's say in the US or or UK so let me know how you approach it from your own angle.
1: Yeah so I mean I I think it's important to say that my personal view is that I don't actually want there to be you know more than a million or more than that proportion of domestic workers in, in South Africa. I mean, I think that's an abnormally huge proportion okay. based on the rest of the population. So, and our business doesn't need a million domestic workers um, in order to be successful and to continue growing. So, um, our vision has been to bring on as many as we can from the existing pool um, for people who do join our platform. We, uh, what we provide and the value that we add is decent wages, um, ensuring that the wages really measure up well, not just against minimum wage, also against, uh, you know, what are people paying on average in big cities, and then how can we push that up over time through use of tech and through having different customers, so distributing the, you know, the kind of the daily rate between different people so that it's it's also affordable for customers and then also around dignity. So people understanding that this type of work is dignified work. It's professional work in the same way that, you know, the artist and the plumber or electrician who comes to fix your home, you know, people who come and clean your home are experienced and they know what they're doing. And there's, there's experience and skill that goes behind that as well, right. which is the reason why many South Africans aren't able to do that adequately themselves, you know. And then the third part is, is around inclusivity. So, you know, using, we're a tech platform, but it's important that we're taking uh, sweepstars and we call the the ladies on our platform. We don't like using the term domestic workers or even worse, maids or chars, all of these kind of more derogatory uh, historical terms. So we've invented our our own term. And for Sweepstars, it was also important that we're building a tech platform and the ladies who are doing work on our platform are part of this movement forward and this access to technology. And then there's access that comes over and above that. So there's access to, to education and through the knowledge economy and what's available on the internet through the app. Because you're now using your phone for something more than just, you know, Facebook and WhatsApp. You're now using it to access work. Mm -hmm. There are other services and products and information that you should then also have access to. And then there's taking it out of the informal and kind of the black market or gray market economy and now being able to say, this is what people have earned. This is how they've performed in their work. This is how long they've performed in this way. This information should also be used to influence whether people have access to financial products and are uh, kind of able to move up in levels in terms of uh, loans that they have access to, the ability to open up accounts, family accounts in a responsible way, etc.
0: That's interesting. So you're layering on top of that some other services and features for the superstars to be able to have access to other things as well. Is that what? You're doing? I think
1: that's extremely important, yes, because what we realized is that, you know, as much as we would like to say, let's just through the platform, double the average monthly rate that a sweepstar is going to get paid. That's not a realistic way to look at it because, you know, you need to Have customers you're able to pay at those sorts of rates as well otherwise you have a business that doesn't function and so in the meantime whilst we're gradually trying to upskill and through various other means work our way up towards a more decent wage at the same time let's look at what other value what additional value we can provide while we're doing that and so that's kind of where it came out is that we can't just through your per hour rate or your, or the amount that you get per month we can't kind of catapult you to where we feel you should be so let's look at value adds in terms of you know digital inclusivity financial inclusivity um, allowing people to take part in the knowledge economy through access to workshops uh, either offline or online and so we're helping people in that way as well.
0: That's true. That's really good. That led me to the next question about your business model. What is the business model like? I assume it's a marketplace model, but can you walk me through the price and the numbers behind it?
1: Yeah, so we're a marketplace model where we take a percentage of the fee that's paid by customers and that's used to cover everything from the platform and building the platform to our in-office team, in-office support and everything else that goes behind running the business. So we charge 38 rand per hour and then 20% of that comes to the business and, you know, and goes towards running the business, and 80% goes towards the sweepstars.
0: And how many cleaning hours are you doing now on a monthly basis, or how many sweepstars on your platform at this stage?
1: So, um, as of this month, we're doing about 33,000, 34,000. So it's the last day of the month. So I just need, I just need to get an update on that. But 33,000, 34,000 bookings per month. We've got about 5,000 sweepstars who we've onboarded onto the platform. In like 6,000 from this month that we've onboarded onto the platform and we're working in four different South African cities. We're about to expand into three more by the end of this year and also have plans to expand outside of South Africa. And that's being managed by a team of about 27 people in office.
0: That's interesting. So there were 34,000 bookings and what's the average booking hour like?
1: It's interesting because it fluctuates. So it's um, anything from about 6.5 hours to 7 plus hours. When we started off at it was around five hours or so five five and a half but it's moved up over time and i think as our customer base has also changed
0: okay so that's pretty good so that means you are doing about thirty-four thousand times six hours times 38 round per month that's
1: yeah th- that's it exactly in yeah. terms
0: of the top line revenue and you're revenue, making 20 yeah. yeah. of that are you profitable at the moment
1: so we're not and we've not and that's been a conscious decision so what we've decided to do is to focus on fueling growth and i think you know the the way that Uber has approached their markets is a, a good way but maybe a, an extreme way but to think about how we think about our business so you know it's a winner-takes-all market it's one that has very strong first-mover advantage and so we've really focused on growing the business and on putting any potential profits back into marketing and in trying to grow our customer base experimenting so we're the first business of its kind on the continent so there's a lot of experimentation as well around customer base and how to reach those customers and at what point do you need to start including more traditional media so yeah there's a lot of experimentation still going on in our efforts to continue growing at the same pace
0: so it means that you can be profitable if you decide to but you are using that to expand so let's talk about your unique economics then what is your unit economics like is a positive at, at the moment, or yeah, so, so
1: yeah, no, they're looking very good. In fact, we were told by a potential investor a few weeks ago that probably look a bit too healthy. So,
0: <laughs> is it? So uh, what are uh, you doing? Are you doing six x or ten x?
1: So no, we're doing three or four x, um, and so you know we're fueling everything back in, into marketing, and we've taken that advice into account. But basically, we're making back what we spend on an acquisition in about two bookings, which is very healthy.
0: That's interesting. So there are two sides to your own unit economics by the way so there are two sides to it the one side is the supply side which is how long how much does it take you to acquire a superstar and how much do you make on average from them which is secondary to the primary one of the demand side and how much does it take um. it to acquire the person that is booking and how much do they spend in a year if you use it yeah. a yearly lifetime value so which one is 4x yeah.
1: so I think without kind of sharing too much information about the business <laughs> but I think what I can say is that the biggest cost um, so we don't and again, because of the markets that we're in, where there are high levels of unemployment, there's virtually zero marketing that goes towards bringing supply on board. Okay. And so the biggest cost there is really around vetting and particularly around the strict checks that we're doing into background and, uh, you know, whether there's a criminal record or not, which are obviously paid checks. But that's made back well within the first month of someone working yeah. for us. And then the ongoing costs just around support, you know, transaction costs, the day-to-day of running the business from the supply side as well.
0: And do you have challenge with platform leakage? And if you do, how do you address that?
1: It's something that we're aware of. It's something that you have to be aware of, platform leakage disintermediation um, in this type of business. And it's something that we haven't had to worry about for Sweep South in the very, very low uh, single digit percentages from what we can detect. In many of those, those cases, you have both the sweep star and the customer come back at a later stage uh, because these problems still exist, right? We're doing the introduction, but there's still a lot of problems around pay and treatment and efficiency and what happens when your domestic worker goes on holiday. So you don't have those problems with sweep south because your sweep star can always be uh, replaced short term by someone else. And when she comes back from leave, uh, you know, she'll then resume her work with you. So we find that both sides return in the very rare cases where it does happen. But what we focus on instead of trying to kind of track that or act on it too much, it is in a punitive way, is what we do is make sure we're adding value to both sides. Yeah, and yeah. so the, your value proposition for your sweepstar in particular has to be very strong. And so the benefits that we provide, apart from the platform, are the things that really keep people with us. And we've had many, many cases per month where you have you know customers reporting back these stories where you know I'd ask the sweepstar if she'd want you know work for me uh, privately and she's said no no you know I work for Sweep South <laughs> yes. so if you want to work with me you're going to have to continue through the platform. And
0: I think there's a learning here actually I find your approach as the best one because a lot of people approach this intermediation of their marketplace by using the stick rather than the carrot mm-hmm. and trying to be punitive about it and say if you leave this platform this is what you're going to get and stuff like that and also some people try to give carrots in a way by giving incentive for people to use the platform but they approach it by giving that to the demand side rather than the supply side not knowing that it is the person that is actually providing the service that actually holds the age card so your approach is quite good because that way if you incentivize the the Swifters to be motivated or incentivized to want to do transactions on the platform they are the one that will interact with whoever is talking to them to say you need to engage with me through this platform because that's the only way I get this X amount of value and there's a lesson there for anyone because marketplace is very hard the first business was a marketplace (laughs) and it's just hard yeah. to be able to yeah. manage that apart from the fact that you have to keep the supply enough for the demand and there's also this problem with this intermediation or, or platform leakage and you're approaching it well so as we get into the end of this conversation I really want to talk about your scale it's in the backdrop of other businesses like yours in the US mm-hmm. that has folded yeah. yeah. and yeah. one of the reasons for that was a uh, scale and also the labor laws in the US about other that, all that mm-hmm. stuff and they raised a lot of money to yeah. do that how are you approaching this and you told me you have about four cities now and you're going to more how scalable is this and given the backdrop of uh, companies in the u.s that are forward and doing the same thing like you and the challenges that they faced what are your approach to this
1: yeah so i think in some ways we're fortunate in that we have these examples that are are kind of cautionary tales for us to, to look at in running our own business and in scaling our own business and one of the the things that we have to our advantage is is that we don't have this level of pressure from investors or whoever else to scale rapidly outside of the country. I think there's an understanding that there's a big enough market even locally within South Africa to satisfy the type of growth you know that investors want to see in the first few years. And so we look at a, a couple of different opportunities for scale. One of them is obviously different countries, different cities and different countries. The other is different types of services that you could perform within existing markets. And so, you know, for us, it's seen that we scale and we move out of the country when it feels right and when the time is right in terms of where you've got into within your own markets. That's obviously got to be balanced out with uh, looking at the businesses that are or, or that may come up in the markets you want to go into at the moment. We're very lucky in that there's very little competition on the continent and in many other emerging markets. But, you know, we're obviously monitoring that. That closely, But we've been focused on perfecting the service, making sure that we have good solid unit economics, building up the market locally, really trying to understand our playbook so we understand what it takes to launch in a new city. And what it will take to launch in a new country. And you've got that, you know, built up into a playbook that, you know, is literally these are the steps that you take, which I think makes it very helpful. But I think just being cautious and not not being put under undue pressure to expand. I think if you look at what happened overseas, the there were two big competitors that came out of the U.S. And the one that's still around is the one that actually stayed, you know, in the U.S. and expanded to different U.S. cities and took longer to kind of move outside of the continent. So that's been a good lesson for us.
0: So you took the lesson from that that you need to scale at a pace that you can maintain and that you can actually um, work with, rather than just scale for scale's sake. And yeah,
1: and once you also really have a good, good handle on your on your product. Yes. You know, and a service. You know, as you say, marketplaces are notoriously difficult. And when your product is a service, and that service is something that's delivered by a complex human being, mm-hmm. it makes it all the more difficult. And so we really wanted to make sure that we also had a very good handle on product and product quality levels and so, how to drive that
0: So what are the key factors that you look for before scaling to a particular city? I assume you're going to look at some factors around affordability, uh, the macroeconomics of that city and demands on the supply side. But well, Can you walk me through the specifics and criteria that you look for? Uh, let's say it might even be outside in South Africa yeah. and in terms of yeah, countries yeah. that you're looking at scaling yeah. to.
1: Yeah. So we look at market size. Is it worth it to be active in this market and will that size afford us enough? space to grow even if we're only capturing anything from 2 to 10% of the overall market at first and then we look at things like whether there is this pool of supply so do you have relatively high unemployment rates, do you have people who are experienced in doing this type of work but you have difficulty in connecting to people whose homes they can work in, we look at whether there's enough of a middle class, a kind of upwardly mobile middle class to support this sort of work, so are there people who can pay for the service, we look at things like how many people mobile penetration how many people have uh, phones even basic smartphones where is that trend moving towards we look at infrastructure so a good indicator for us particularly in other countries outside of South Africa is is there a decent startup scene because usually that's accompanied by the right sorts of tech and payment infrastructure that would support us going into a city Um, and then we just look at things like you know is it somewhere we could also grow in terms of other sorts of services so is it a place where people are or could become familiar with the idea of someone helping them regularly with home cleaning and other services in their homes and you know that's certainly not the case in these kind of European US more economically developed markets where cleaning and home services are often seen as a luxury and something that you do once a month once every few months Um, but you know in a lot of African countries it's very very common to have someone every day to help you with home cleaning with looking after children and in fact in our very early conversations with sweep stars. We were really surprised to discover that some of our sweep stars, particularly those who were working somewhere else a few days a week, actually had people who they had employed to look after their children while they were doing domestic work in someone else's home. So, yeah, very interesting dynamic. Yeah,
0: yeah, interesting in terms of the pay as well. So, they must be paying whoever they're employing a significantly lower per hour compared to what yeah. they're earning power yeah. to make it worthwhile. Okay, so,
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting. I think I want to ask you about how much you've raised so far I know you went to 500 Startup which was very good and I want to know about the impact of that for you and how did I help you to raise money afterwards I also know the first time I heard about your business was through Pule from CRE VC and um, Mm he talked about you glowingly and that was about two years ago I think that was Mm -hmm. just when you were going to 500 Startup so two questions how much have you raised so far and how did 500 Startup Accelerator program impact your business
1: so we don't uh, disclose how much we've raised in total it's upwards of a million dollars overall over three funding rounds. We had a very, very small kind of angel slash seed round. Pule was one of our, our first investors and um, a real breath of fresh air when it came to his understanding of tech startups in general, but also African tech startups and how they will differ in their growth trajectory from the kind of typical Silicon Valley models. So mm. that yeah, that was our first round and then we raised a an institutional round thereafter along with the 500 startups round. So we spent some time in Silicon Valley uh, completed the program with 500 startups they became an investor and then we had one of the South African bank funds so FNB's uh, Vumela fund which is a both a VC fund but also social impact fund so they became an investor and then our third round was with a retail merchandising company who have offices all around the world Um, really 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 impressive company called Small Group which was started uh, in South Africa, out of Johannesburg, and has been family-run ever since. Despite the fact that it's, you know, operating in I think 36 different countries around the world. Interesting. And they became our third investor, but uh, along with some others like DJ Black Coffee and Draper Flow also made a small investment in that round. But what's been fantastic is that we really chose investors well and chose investors whose vision for the country and the continent, and also whose understanding of tech business is really well aligned with ours. I think that's done us really, really well because I know that having the wrong investor can really mess you up and ours has been the the absolute opposite. Yes, and are you raising now? Uh, We will be raising soon. We're in conversations with a few investors who've wanted to kind of get in over the past few years and for whatever reason it hasn't worked out. And so yeah, we will be raising again and uh, the next big steps for us are obviously the international expansion and then the expansion into other vertical
0: So when you say international expansion, you're talking about expanding to other African countries.
1: That's right. So that will be the first stages is uh, expanding. And I specifically use the word international because I do not want to make the mistake that I think a lot of uh, South African companies have made in thinking that, you know, Africa is a country and, you know, all these cities are the same. So for us, it will be a very, very different and very exciting experience going into and Nairobi is likely to be our first city outside of South Africa. Africa, and then uh, kind of going to West Africa. Following that,
0: that's great. And then there will be global domination as well.
1: Yeah, so that's the plan. <laughs> <laughs> and you talk. the plan.
0: And you talk about other verticals. So, are you thinking of layering on top of this service that you have now? Other things that uh, we follow the same model. So, service from supply side to the demand side and stuff like that. Is that what you're thinking?
1: I mean, that follows well pretty organically. You know, once you're providing cleaning services, you know, it almost stands to reason that you would be able to say to your customer that there are these other services that we can also help you with when it comes to things you need done around the home. And, We've gotten over that really critical first hurdle, which is just getting people to trust the platform and to trust the business and to trust having us in their home while they're at work or, you know, while they're out of the home. And so getting over that initial hurdle, why not then be able to say that we're your complete home services solution?
0: That makes sense. That makes sense. So it's great. So we've got to the end of this podcast, but I really want to ask you some fire and question, just one statement, uh, question, and then I'll just need your straight answer. To them, are you you ready for that? I'll try. (laughs)
1: I'll try my best.
0: What is your biggest business pain point at the moment?
1: Uh, I think lack of skilled employees. So yeah, getting to a point where we need people with deep technical skills.
0: Are you talking about the core employees that work?
1: Core employees in office, yeah. Developers, operations specialists, yeah. Digital marketing specialists. Yes.
0: What is your number one growth metric?
1: It's bookings per month.
0: Bookings per month. And
1: revenue then follows. Yes. Yes.
0: So revenue is the output metric, but the input metric trick is the book in Spamont. Okay, That's good. It. Which book are you reading at the moment?
1: I'm reading a book on our current deputy president and newly elected president of the ANC, Soro Ramaphosa. And so it's a biography by a guy called Anthony Butler, which has been fascinating.
0: What is the book called? I think I might have seen it at the airport when I was leaving. I think it's
1: just called Soro Ramaphosa. Yes. yes um, but yeah, it's about his early life from being a school-going child all the way to most recently.
0: Okay, it's not the one that I saw then. Another the one I saw at the airport called the Man Who Will Be King or something like that.
1: Ah. Yes, in a <laughs> book about
0: not, him, the, the Man Who Will Be King. Uh, yeah. Right. Which business is getting you excited at the moment apart from your own business?
1: Um, I think as a category, I'm really interested in fintech and uh, kind of fintech startups, uh, particularly the ones that are focusing on not necessarily Bitcoin, but blockchain and applying that to different fintech applications. I think I'm really excited about how that's going to unfold and whether in the near future we'll see any applications that help to solve some of the problems that we have with people having access to financial products or being unbanked on the continent.
0: That's great. That's super interesting. So Aisha, it's been interesting talking to you. I really enjoyed this conversation and I hope our listeners also enjoyed it as well. There are lots of learnings that I can get from this and I hope you enjoyed it as well.
1: I did. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you for coming to be in the future. Cool. Thanks. This series is in partnership with the British Council in Nigeria. The British Council is the UK's international organization for cultural relations and educational opportunities. All opinions expressed by me and the podcast guests are solely ours and does not reflect the opinion or policies of the British Council. For more information about the British Council, go to britishcouncil.org.ng. Do you have an offer, a product, service, or message that will be ideal for entrepreneurs, investors, or corporate executives across Africa? Building the Future podcast can help you. This podcast has been sponsored by partners who want to reach super targeted audience of investors, entrepreneurs, and people who are in the process of starting their own business. If you or your company is interested in reaching those audiences, through this podcast we would like to chat with you we have sponsorship slots from three episodes up to one year send me an email via hello at the starter.com that is h-e-l-l-o at t-h-e-s-t-a-r-t-a dot com and we can take this further you've been listening to building the future podcast by Dalton. These are the interviews with entrepreneurs that are playing a key part in shaping the African future, and you'll be able to hear all their stories. For more, sign up for the weekly newsletter at thestarter.com. Our revolution will be televised. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed the show. Before you go, I have a favor to ask you, and it will take 30 seconds of your time or less. It will mean a lot to me. If you like this podcast, you can easily let me know by going into iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you download podcasts and subscribe. You can also go to our website, thestarta.com that is T-H-E-S-T-A-R-T-A dot com, and sign up for our newsletter. It will be a huge favor to me, and it's really simple and easy. If you subscribe now, it will help us a lot. Thanks.